0: Hello from Politicology, I'm Ron Steslow, and welcome back to State of the Vote, Every Tuesday all the way up until Election Day, we're going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and Senate. And obviously that sets the foundation for power dynamics leading up to the presidential election. We have partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They are the mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. If you'd like to follow along, DecisionDeskHQ.com is where you can find their House and Senate elections models, which update daily. I'm joined today by Kyle Williams from the DDHQ team. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, thanks for making the time again. How are you doing?
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me again.
0: So uh, let's dig in. Last week, we gave an overview of the issues and concerns that are shaping the election environment. Um, Let's talk about any major changes you've seen over the last week. How's the generic ballot shifted?
1: So this week we saw the generic ballot go from something like uh, one point uh, Republicans leading by one point three points to now leading the generic ballot by one point eight points. So overall, we over the last week have really seen the environment become significantly more Republican. I think last week when we talked, one of the reflections we had was the overall national environment hadn't changed a lot, and this week we really did see a lot of movement in the national environment. That I think one of the fascinating things we've experienced and observed over the past, uh, I guess, three to four months now, over the whole the entire summer, basically, is the environment seeming to be much more friendly to Democrats than you would sort of naively expect during a midterm year when Joe Biden, who's not particularly popular, was the president. That we saw in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman doing better than expected. We saw in Georgia, Raphael Warnock holding it better than expected. But over the past really, especially seven to eight days, we've seen the environment really sort of return to, I think, more what you might think, might expect based on the fundamentals that this week, our likelihood of Democrats holding the Senate declined from around 63% to around 53%. So a significant Significant drop-off just over a single week. And that's a pattern we saw repeated across a number of the major battlegrounds. And that's really what's driving the uh, probability of, Republi- of uh, Republicans flipping the Senate really increasing significantly.
0: So we know that elections always tighten toward the end. Every, it always gets closer toward the end. That's exactly what we're seeing now. And one of the themes that we've explored in the, in the last you know several months on the podcast is Basically, the the headwinds, the historical headwinds that Democrats are up against in these midterms, um, you know, being that the party in power usually does badly in in off-year elections and midterms. Um, uh, so you got this, you got this historical trend that Democrats are up against, and part of the challenge for them has been trying to change the nature of the election. What, what this is all about from a referendum on Biden to a choice election, right? If it's a referendum, they do badly. If it's a choice election then they have a little bit more control over the framing, uh, and, and can, and can do better. And so sounds like what you're saying now is that those historical trends, the historical headwind is just getting stronger. And, uh, and, and this is looking much more like a referendum election than it is choice.
1: Exactly. And that is really almost historically, with just a handful of exceptions, almost impossible to make a midterm be anything other than a referendum on the incumbent president. We actually, just earlier today, were talking internally at Decision Desk HQ about which elections historically we are the most reminded of based on the current environment. And there are a number of us who independently said this feels a lot like 2014. If you remember 2014, uh, ultimately was a year that wasn't the worst year ever for Democrats, but was a pretty bad election for them overall. But if you reflect over the year of 2014, leading up to that election, for a long time in 2014, it looked like that might be something like a status quo election. Obama worked really hard in 2014 to defend vulnerable Senate incumbents, and uh, it really looked like that year a number of vulnerable Senate Democrats might survive. But then we really saw, in I believe September, October of 2014, uh, the generic ballot went from very even to very Republican favoring, and ultimately um, Democrats in competitive races in 2014 were largely wiped out. And there were a number of us who said, hey, this feels a lot like 2014. This feels a lot like a year where for a long time It looked like um, Democrats were going to hang on in their key battlegrounds. And right here at the end, we're seeing sort of that return to fundamentals again. So I feel like right now, uh, you know, a lot of echoes of 2014, I feel like.
0: Okay, so let's take a look at the House and Senate separately. Why don't you give us an overview of how the Senate races have shifted uh, writ large over the last week? There's been a steady increase, it looks like, in Republicans' chances of winning an outright majority.
1: Yeah, overall, Republicans' chances of flipping the Senate have increased significantly over, again, the past seven days. I think they're now Just since uh, last week. Yeah, just since last week. I think last week when we spoke, um, we gave Democrats a 63% chance of holding the Senate, and that's now down to about 53%. And that's de- that depends on, uh, we spoke a bit ago about the generic ballot, Republicans standing on generic ballot has improved. But even then, you have to remember in the Senate, control of the Senate really is going to come down to a handful of key battlegrounds. And you know, at risk of sounding repetitive, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, you're going to hear those names over and over again. So to just highlight one of those, Arizona, the Arizona Senate race, where incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly is trying to defend... Defeat Republican nominee, Blake Masters throughout most of the year. That's an example where in polling, we've seen, uh, uh, we've seen Mark Kelly really do significantly better than I think you would expect a Democrat to do in a state like Arizona that only recently has become winnable at all for, for Democrats. And over the past week, we've started to see that sort of come back down to earth a little bit, that based on some, you know, there was, for example, a Trafalgar poll that came out this past week that had Kelly only leading by a single point, which is significantly lower than what we've seen for him in other polls recently, but honestly, it's probably significantly closer to how you'd expect a Democrat to be performing in a midterm year in Arizona. Uh, so we now only give a uh, Mark Kelly, something like a 72% chance of winning, down from 81%. And we moved that race from likely Democratic to, to lean Democratic over the past week. And there's a similar trend as well that you've heard us talk about Nevada before. And Nevada again is a race that doesn't get as much attention in the media. And I think you can chalk it up to the fact that Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxalt, who are the Democratic and the Republican nominees respectively, are sort of. I think it's not unreasonable to say boring, generic candidates on some level. They are not exciting in the way that maybe Herschel Walker or Blake Masters or John Fetterman are. Um, And we've seen uh, there was some new polling this week that showed Adam Laxalt increasing his lead on the polling average that uh, last week when we spoke, Adam Laxalt led our polling average by around a point. That's now up to about two and a half points. There was a poll from YouGov, for example, that had Laxalt up by one. Um, So Catherine Cortez Masto uh, led our forecast last week by a really, really narrow margin. We gave her a 56% chance of winning. And now we have that down to a 46% chance of winning. And so you see this sort of broad trend over all these key battlegrounds. Catherine Cortez Masto, the Democrat, is doing worse in Nevada. We see John Fetterman's lead has narrowed in Pennsylvania. We see Mark Kelly's advantage has decreased in Arizona. And in each case... I think, actually, we see that that advantage isn't necessarily like is what you would expect relative to the fundamentals in those states. You would not expect a Democrat to easily win an open Senate seat in Pennsylvania in a midterm year. You would not expect a Democrat to easily win a Senate race in Arizona in a midterm year. And earlier in the year, it was surprising that that was sort of what we saw in a lot of the data and a lot of the polling. And what we've seen over the past week is things return, again, closer to the fundamentals of the situation I think you'd expect, based on historical patterns.
0: Is there uh, some shift in the issues that are top of mind, and in particular the issues that are getting the most media coverage that may be behind this, uh, this shift in the environment?
1: Sure. I mean, it's we always try to be a little bit cautious about directly connecting media coverage around things to how that gets reflected in polling. But I think it's not challenging to draw a through line around things like you know, abortion, for example. So of course, in the immediate wake of the Dobbs decision earlier in the summer, there was a lot of media attention around abortion. And we see in our polling at DDHQ that abortion is an issue that's quite favorable to Democrats. So the closer in proximity you are to that decision, you could imagine that's something that's beneficial to, to Democrats. And as we get further away from that, that becomes less top- of mind for voters uh, and we sort of see things like inflation, things like crime boiling uh, back up to the top of the issues voters are concerned about. And those are issues that again if you ask voters in polling, voters by significant margin, for example, will say they trust Republicans on an issue like inflation over over Democrats. And this connects back to our earlier discussion, uh, you know is this a referendum on Joe Biden? because if this is a referendum on Joe Biden and you're a voter and you're thinking about inflation, you're like, well, I don't really like where inflation is. Joe Biden is the president. Mark Kelly is a Democratic senator in Arizona. I'm going to vote for Blake Masters.
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, this is funny. I was talking to a reporter about this um, last week, actually. What you just outlined is basically... Uh, if you're if you're if you're a Democrat running for office right now, abortion is a good issue for you, but it isn't the top issue. Voters are far more concerned about the economy, inflation, uh, rising cost of gas uh, than they than they are abortion. However, you want to pivot to to good issue territory for you. So anytime you get questions, concerns, you know you're in public, you're talking about uh, you know issues voters care about, you're going to get a question about the economy. You're going to question about inflation. And your job is to try and get out of that territory as fast as you can and pivot to something that's safe for you where the numbers net out positively, and that would be abortion. So um, however, that can lead to some really cringy takes if you do this sloppily. And I've seen that on the trail from a couple of Democrats already.
1: One of the big upsets in 2014 was um, Democrats, uh, Democrats blew a Senate race in Colorado. Mark Udall, who's a former Democratic senator from Colorado who lost in 2014, um, he tried to make that election in 2014 a lot about abortion back then. And I remember there were, were attack ads about Mark uterus at, at the time. Um, and so you sort of see if you do this in a, in a clumsy fashion, this is something that can, you can experience blowback from. And I think maybe we see now, that now to uh, some extent.
0: Yeah, the issues that the voters care about are uh, are we got to stay focused on. So, uh let's look at the house. Um now again we should remind people that polling house races is incredibly difficult because of the the the, the geography and the you know getting the samples right. Um and that your model is is influenced largely by environmental factors. So when you're talking about the balance of power in the house, that's predicted mostly by the environment, not necessarily individual house race polling, right? Because that is few and far between at least the good ones. So um so let's talk about what kind of movement you've seen in house races over the last week.
1: So in the house we haven't seen a ton of movement over the past week that um this week and last week. Um, we saw we give Republicans around a 79% chance of flipping the House. Uh, the size of their majority, we anticipate, got a little bit bigger. That I think when we last spoke, we anticipated Republicans landing at something like a 25-seat majority in the House. Their odds have gone up a little bit. We now anticipate them landing with something like a 27-seat majority is our median prediction. But things in the House haven't changed a whole lot because I think it's interesting. The House is less impacted by these sort of individual race-level factors, that the name ID on the typical House candidate is a lot a lot lower than the name ID on the typical Senate candidate, and so these races tend to be driven a lot more by um, uh, sort of national, uh, uh, national environment type type effects. And so we haven't seen these sorts of changes in the House forecast over the past week because the House forecast already was quite Republican leaning. That that was one of the interesting dichotomies. Is again over the past three or four months, we've looked at the House forecast and said, okay, this makes sense. There's a Democratic president. He's unpopular. Democrats are very likely to lose the House. That sort of aligns, I think, with what you'd expect based on historical patterns. The thing that was surprising, again, was looking at the Senate and saying, "Okay, it seems like Republicans, this should be a layup flipping the Senate. And it was surprising that that wasn't the case. So we've seen a reversion to fundamentals, I think, in the Senate, whereas in the House, we haven't seen as large a change because that's sort of already matched, I think, with what you'd historically expect.
0: That makes sense. I want to zoom in on one house race in particular, and then maybe another one that you want to look at. But uh, there was a major shift in the New York Eighteenth. Now that Pat Ryan is considered an incumbent there, uh, do you want to walk through what happened there, why he's now considered an incumbent, and then how much of that shift is due to polling, and how much of that has to do with the you know the fundamentals around incumbents and races?
1: Sure, sure. So Pat Ryan, I think his incumbency is a little bit of an edge case. So there was a special election earlier this year. This is in, I think, this is in upstate New York. Uh, that Pat Ryan won a special election against Republican Mark Molinaro. And I remember in that special election, we were all surprised that night because we had expected Republicans to be able to flip that seat. Um, and Pat Ryan sort of unexpectedly won by, I think, a larger than, a larger margin than we anticipated. And so he wasn't an incumbent coming out of 2020. He's an incumbent based on the special election victory earlier this year. And we updated our model to reflect his incumbency status and commensurately his likelihood of victory is significantly higher. And I think, you know. That sort of aligns with decades of political science research, that if you have a candidate who uh, they've successfully faced voters before, uh, it's sort of implied by that they have some charisma, some ability to connect with voters, some ability to run a campaign and raise money. Um, And so once our model knows, okay, Pat Ryan, this is not a challenger off the street, as it were. This is someone who's faced voters successfully in the past. Uh, who understands sort of an issue set that appeals to voters in this area once our model sees that then our model like oh okay you know this person has a significantly better chance of victory than someone who doesn't necessarily have that experience
0: I got kind of a curveball question for you but as a practitioner this is something i would look at i don't know if it's uh, if it's something you look at for your model but do you consider what the ballot actually looks like when you are looking at a race, for example New York 18, and whether it indicates that Pat Ryan is the incumbent on the ballot as you're going to vote for them because some some ballots will, some ballots will not right depends on the jurisdiction. and uh, to me, right if I'm running the campaign, i I, I see an, an obvious advantage if my candidate has an you know an, an incumbent uh, label next to his name right on the ballot there. Some ballots don't some ballots, some ballots don't do that. Do you consider stuff like that?
1: So we don't necessarily consider specifically what does the ballot physically look like in, in each state because I think you know for one there are practical challenges around that it's like that can change so often how do you historically get that information but what our model does know is what were the past vote results in which state and historically if our if a given, uh, if a given state can seems to confer a larger incumbency advantage than a different state, the model will be able to perceive that so you know for example, if it is the case that because of this incumbents in New York have a stronger advantage than incumbents in Florida the the model doesn't necessarily know. Okay, the ballot like physically looks different than in a different state, but it will be able to detect. Okay, on average, incumbents in the state perform better. So there's no explicit function. There's no explicit feature in the model looking at like literally how's the ballot structured, but that information is implicitly in there.
0: Got it. Makes sense. Okay, so uh, as it sits right now, uh, let, let's look at the balance of power. Which which party do you expect to win the House and the Senate? What margin do you think they'll have? And uh, and let's sort of place a marker for next week.
1: Uh, sure. So right now, we still anticipate um, uh, Republicans to flip the House. We give Republicans around a 79% chance of flipping the House with something like a 27-seat majority. And again, circling back to our earlier discussion, a lot of House candidates have very low name ID. Republicans are performing quite well on the generic ballot. Joe Biden is the president. He's quite unpopular. Historically, that's usually been enough to give the opposition party what they need to be able to get a House majority. And that's essentially what we're saying is going to happen here. In 2010, Barack Obama Obama was president. He was unpopular. Republicans flipped the house in 2018. Donald Trump was unpopular. Democrats flipped the house in 1994. Bill Clinton was unpopular. Republicans flipped the house. This is not a recent thing. This is completely in line with historically what we've seen uh, uh, for a long time. I actually sometimes joke to people, you know, the the iron law of American politics is uh, the uh, president's party will lose the house in his first midterm. Like there are only a couple of exceptions to that since like World War II. Um, and that's what we're probably going to see here. Um, the Senate, again, over the past year has been a little bit more of a wild card just because of the idiosyncrasies associated with the seats that are up and who the nominee, who the Republican nominees ended up being. Um, but things have trended significantly toward uh, Republicans over the past week. Uh, we now have Republicans uh, Democrats had something like a 53% chance to retain their 50-50 control. So the Senate is very, very close to a toss-up. That is to say, there's about a 50-50 chance, roughly speaking, that Democrats will keep their 50-50 majority, 50% chance chance that um, Republicans will net their one seat they need to get to 51-49 and make Mitch McConnell majority leader
0: again. Anywhere else on the map that's worth zooming into uh, before we go?
1: Sure. So I always like to look at a couple of House seats because I feel like, you know, 435 House seats, uh, you know, a lot of the individual narratives that are in those different House seats get lost in the shuffle. So when interesting things happen there, I like to point them out. So one of our favorite congressional districts at DDHQ is Maine's 2nd Congressional District. Um, so Maine actually is a fascinating state because it has two congressional districts. One of them is safely Democratic, the other one used to be highly competitive back in the sort of Obama era, Bill Clinton, George Bush era. But uh, so this Maine Maine's second congressional district, you can imagine northern Maine, which is very cold and very rural and has quite low educational attainment. Obama won this district twice. And you have to remember, Maine's one of those states that they actually divide their electoral votes by congressional district. Obama picked up Maine's second uh, congressional district electoral vote twice. And then Trump won it twice as well as we enter this age of educational polarization. The incumbent House rep there is a guy named Jared Golden, who's a Democrat, who first won in the 2018 Democratic wave and then narrowly won again in 2020. And he's up again, and this time he's probably really in for the fight of his life because this is a district that demographically continues to trend against Democrats, and his opponent this time is a guy named Bruce Poliquin, who is the former incumbent that he beat in 2018. Um so this week uh, a new poll came in that had Golden sort of up by a significant margin and so we moved the race from lean R to toss up but Maine's 2nd Congressional District is a really interesting example of the kind of place that Democrats you know in the Obama era were able to perform well in uh, but in the Trump era as educational polarization has really taken hold it's become really challenging so whether or not Jared Golden can survive um, his rematch with Bruce Poliquin is going to be an interesting thing to look at in November The other one I wanted to highlight is Virginia's second congressional district, and this is Virginia Beach Newport News. So Elaine Luria there is the incumbent Democrat who also won in the 2018 Democratic wave, and then in 2020. Uh, Managed to uh, win re election pretty easily. Uh, This time, uh, her district became redder in redistricting. And so she is really in for the fight of her life. Um, Jen Kiggins is the Republican nominee. She's quite a high quality candidate who's done well in fundraising. Uh, And this is an example of a place that's sort of very high educated um, overall and is the kind of place that historically Republicans did well in, but in the Trump era, Democrats have made significant gains, as reflected by Luria's victory in 2018 and 2020. But it's interesting to look at somewhere like Virginia, too, and see, will Democrats be able to hold on to those gains in an environment where inflation is high and Joe Biden is not popular?
0: Kyle, this is fantastic and illuminating, as always. Thank you for hopping on today. We'll see you next week.
1: No problem. A pleasure, as always.
0: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.